welcome all of those of you that are joining us, particularly those that are joining us online that were at our campuses in the Gulf Coast that didn't have service uh, this weekend. We are so excited to have you guys with us online. Come on, can we just welcome all those that are joining us? We are in a series called Unshaken. Uh, we are studying 1 Thessalonians. We're in week five. Uh, I will be finishing it up, teaching it next weekend. And then we will be starting a new series, a three-part uh, series after that on a different topic. Together, we've been learning what it means uh, to live confidently in dangerous times. And we live in a, in a world... Uh, globally speaking, there's lots going on, uh, all kind of things and shifts and turns, and uh, whether it's politically, uh, whether it's culturally, there's just all kind of stuff that's happening economically, things uh, philosophically, ideologically. There is a lot of things that are happening around us, and, and there's a lot of uh, dangerous concerns that people have. Question, how, how do you live confidently as a believer? Uh, how do you live in confidence? How do you live strong when things are shifting around? Even on a personal level, some of you are facing challenges, whether it's in your family, whether it's health challenges or financial challenges. How do you as a believer live confidently? doesn't mean that we, listen, don't let anybody tell you if you're a Christian, you won't go through trials, because you do. But you don't have to give up during the midst of them. You can overcome and be unshaken. So we're teaching through 1 Thessalonians, looking at some biblical principles that, taught, uh, that Paul taught. I will say this. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, if there's a message to get and download online, we give away all of our CDs free, but it's easier to go online and download it. I answered a question that Paul was, was answering. The church at Thessalonica was a young church. They were birthed by the Apostle Paul. You can read about it in Acts 17. He was there for three weeks. A year and a half later in Corinth, he writes back 1 Thessalonians to answer a question. One of the questions that we looked at last week is, what happens when my loved ones die and go on before me? Paul, the whole chapter uh, of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, answering that. With that, he began to discuss and dialogue and outline some end time themes such as the return of Christ, the rapture, the resurrection of the body. Again, I can't reteach that message. Today, I'm actually going to jump into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Why? Because it dovetails beautifully with this whole end time theme that Paul is teaching on. And again, Paul is answering a question. The question that these young Thessalonian believers had was this. Did we miss the second coming of Christ? They were concerned about that. People were telling them, you guys missed it. You didn't make it. And they were freaked out about it. Wouldn't you be freaked about it as a believer? Man, what happened? Paul begins to answer this question that they were asking, did we miss it? And he began to talk about specific things that would happen prior to the return of Christ. Hence, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, before I get into that, I'm going to ask you <clears throat> one more time if you can pull up that graph. Uh, there's a graph. Yeah, I think it's in your notes. Uh, I put it in your notes. And so I want to go through this graph. I want to make three qualifications, all right? Number one, 
I want to make the first up. Uh, this is a lot of information. Again, it's not a typical service at Church of the King. Uh, it's a little bit, we teach out of the Bible every week, but this is a little bit more, it feels a little bit more like a class today, but there's no other way that I can do it. So I think it'll help you. But it is something for you to chew on and take this information. You probably want to download this and listen to this message a couple times as well. Okay, second thing. This is a, a graph of how we see, how I see the end times. I do want to say this. This is my second qualification. There are men and women, godly men and women, that would not see all of these events in these particular, in the sequencing. All right? Uh, some believe that it, it, it shakes out a little bit different here at the end, and that's fine. They can, they're still Christians, but they're wrong. And so anyway, I just, it's all right. So, so, so I, I don't want you to freak out if you think, well, wait a minute. Well, I don't see a difference between the rapture and the second coming. I think they're one event. Or I think that the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ was symbolic and not literal. And so that's, that's okay. But the, the point is that these events do happen uh, and, 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 and how, how they happen and where they happen. Again, there's some interpretation. Again, we are living right here in the church age. When did this start? Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out. The church was born. We live in an age of grace, a day of grace. People can get saved, give their hearts to Christ. I'm going to teach more about that in a moment. This is where we live right here, right now. The next event on the horizon that's important to us as Christians is this event. And again, I taught about this last week, 35 minutes, all right? The rapture of believers, 1 Thessalonians 4. Where does the word rapture come from? Greek word harpazo which means to be caught up. Paul says that when Christ comes as a trumpet, he comes to the clouds. By the way, I believe the scripture teaches that at the rapture, Christ does not come all the way to the earth, but he comes to the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 18. The church is raptured or caught up. Greek word harpazo, that's where that word comes from. Harpazo, Greek, rapture is Latin, translated in English, rapture. So that rapturo, rap, rapture, that's where that comes from. Greek, Latin, English. So that's where this is. Caught up, bam, right here. What happens then to the church? We go to heaven, I believe, for the scripture teaches a literal seven years. This is where the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. By the way, I taught all about this in the book of Revelation two years ago. On the earth, literal seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist is revealed first as a political leader to bring peace. Why? All these people are gone. A lot of stuff happening. Three and a half years, he walks into the temple. I'm going to teach you on this in a moment. Downtown Jerusalem, third temple in Israel, all right, declares himself to be God. The Antichrist does this. Three and a half years later, a lot of stuff happening. Bowls, seals, trumpets. Then the return of Christ. Here, Christ comes back with the church all the way to the earth, sets up, I believe, Scripture teaches, a literal thousand-year uh, reign, a millennial reign, millennial being thousand. And uh, in Jerusalem, by the way, can I get some water, Doug? <coughs> a literal thousand-year reign, then the great white throne judgment. And then John talks about a new heavens and a new earth. This is really interesting. John the Revelator looks up in Revelation chapter 21 and talks about a new heavens and a new earth. And with that, those that are believers will rule and reign with Christ throughout 
eternity. Okay, having said that, this is a chart for you to refer back to it. Now, I want to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes to answer the question, did we miss the second coming? And I want to break this down into three different questions that we're going to ask, and then we're going to teach through that chapter. All right, the first question that we're going to ask uh, that I think helps us to answer the questions about the end times is, how does the day of the Lord relate to the end times and to us today? This concept, everybody say the day of the Lord. Very interesting biblical term, the day of the Lord. How does that relate to the end times and to us today? All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. I'm now teaching. Paul's writing a letter. It's gone to a church that he was at a year and a half ago that he started. He's answering a question they're asking, did we miss the return of Christ? They're freaked out over it. Paul begins to say, you didn't miss it. There are certain things that will happen prior to that moment. Here's, the, here, here's what he says. Now, brethren, concerning the coming, there it is, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken. Don't freak out. All right, in mind or troubled, either by spirit, a spirit, if any demonic spirit out there tries to whisper to you, you missed it, you missed it. Really? No, you didn't. Or by word. If anybody tells you there was a false teaching going on in the first century that, they, that these, these believers had missed the coming of Christ, or by letter. If anybody writes a letter, let me tell you, it's not send, signed by me, don't believe it. As if it was from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. If anybody tells you that you missed it, you didn't miss it. Why? Look at the net. The, uh, yeah, verse 1, verse 2. I'm going to come back to verse 3 and 4 here in a second. Okay, this is a big concept. This is going to help you. I trust. Uh, I want to I unpack for you a biblical concept. It's both in the Old and the New Testament. And it will help you to understand this concept when you understand what Paul's talking about in the return of Christ. Okay, in the end times. When Paul talks about, he says this statement, he says, he says that, that there's a coming together. He says, don't be soon shaken or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as thus the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Everybody say the day of the Lord. Pastor Steve, is the day of the Lord a day or is it a season? The answer is both yes. The day of the Lord, I want you to think about this just for a moment, all right? If I tell you I'm going to see you in three days, hey, hey, man, I want you to come on over, Pastor. Great. No problem. Hey, I'll be there in three days. Okay, that's three days. That's 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours. That's 72 hours. I'm going to say I'm going to be there in three days. But in those three days, in those 72 hours, guess what? There was three daytimes and there was three nights. Notice what I don't say. Hey, I'll be there in three nights. I'm going to be there in three days. But in a 24-hour day, there is a daytime dimension and there is a nighttime dimension. All right? When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, there is a daytime dimension and there is a nighttime dimension, but it's called the day of the Lord. Let me show you in Scripture why this is so important. Because when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, he's not just talking about 
a 24-hour day. There's a daytime component, and there's a nighttime component to that. Let me explain this from this way. Isaiah chapter 61. In the character of God and the way that God deals with mankind, Paul said it this way. Behold the goodness. Everybody say goodness. And the severity. Say severity. So in God's nature, God is a good God. God cares. But there is ultimately consequences to our decisions. The mercy of God and the justice of God. The mercy of God, the daylight of a day. But there's also a nighttime coming, the justice of God. Watch how this relates together. Isaiah chapter 61. By the way, somebody told me last week. Actually, a lot of people say, Pastor, that was really interesting. But you talk too fast. I will talk slower. That's a lie. (laughs) I will try to talk slower, okay? Here it is. So watch this. This is Isaiah the prophet prophesying about Jesus. Jesus uses this same scripture and reads this scripture out of an Old Testament scroll, Isaiah. And Jesus reads this. Watch what you have in here. You have the daytime and the nighttime. You have both of these things together, all right? Remember what my thesis is. The day of the Lord has both a daytime light and a nighttime dimension darkness there's both of that in the day of the lord just like we have a day i'll be there in three days that's three daytimes and three nighttimes the spirit of the lord god is upon me this is isaiah the prophet because the lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor that's good news everybody say good news That's daylight. That's light, man. Good news. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening up prison to those that are bound. That's good news. If you're bound, you can be set free. If you're saved, you can be lost. And what else has he done? He's sent me to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the daytime, the light of the day of the Lord. It's a good thing. There's still opportunity to get saved. There's still opportunity to get healed. But he's also, there's also in the day of the Lord, there's also the day of what? Say it, the day of vengeance of our God. In a day, there is light and there is darkness. There is daytime and there is nighttime. The day of the Lord has both the acceptable, the good news. There is, a, there is opportunity to still respond to Christ, but there's coming a nighttime. There's coming a darkness. There's coming a, a, a recompense. It's, an, it's, a, it's a moment of justice. I uh, remember when I, prior to becoming a Christian, I became a Christian, I was a freshman in college, right when I turned 19 years old. And I, I grew up in church. My parents made me go to church. I had to go to church. There was, it wasn't an option. And so I went to church. And during the worship time, I was always under heavy conviction. I was not a Christian. I know that I wasn't a Christian because I never trusted Christ as my Savior. I understood there was a God, but I, w- I did never receive Christ. And during the worship, I never forget one time, and I would fight it real hard during the singing time. I, just, I, w- I would just harden my heart because I'm like, I'm not going to serve God. I'm not going to do that. And I remember one time a real sense, a real sense, and I, and I felt like God spoke to me. By the way, how many know God speaks to unbelievers? How do I know that? He spoke to a donkey in the Bible. He'll speak to, I'm telling you, God spoke to me. I really felt that, and I, and I felt like, 
I felt like God just, there was a sense in my heart that I'm not always going to deal with you if you harden your heart again. I, I felt that. And I was, and it, it, by the way, in, Isaiah, in uh, Genesis chapter 6, the Bible actually says that God's spirit will not always strive with men. Do you know the scariest thing in the world is when God gives you up to do what you want to do? That's, that's a scary thought, by the way. That's just, it's just a scary thought, which is actually an act of mercy because it brings you to the end of yourself. And there was a sense in my heart, God had been appealing to me. God had been appealing. By the way, God is appealing to mankind today. We live in an age. So where do we live right now, Pastor? Let's pull the graph back. I'll show you where we live. We live, if you can pull my chart up, we live right here. Everybody say grace. This is an opportunity. We live in an age where people can get saved still. People can get healed. They can get restored. They can get set free. This is the light. We live in the light. We still have the Bible and the Holy Spirit and the church and the proclamation of good news. That, 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 that we don't live in the great tribulation. We, don't, we, we live in, an, in, in a season of God's grace being poured out. There's still time. Do you remember this? Here's an analogy. Do you remember in the Old Testament in Genesis when, when Noah was building an ark and everybody thought he was crazy? Oh, you're an old man. You don't know what you're doing. 120 years he built that thing. Y'all remember that? And, and there was still opportunity. Then it started raining a little bit. They started getting a little bit freaked out. And there was the, the doors were still open. But there came a moment when they were closed. Let me just say this. The doors for salvation are still open for your loved ones, for your family members, uh, for the people that work in the office. It's still open. But there's coming a moment where those doors do close. That's in the Bible. Let me say this. So the day of the Lord, this is important as we go through this, is twofold. It began at the first coming of Christ. All right? When Jesus was born, as a he was born, all right, in Bethlehem. He grows up, the Holy Spirit's poured out, boom. All right, so, so this is the beginning, the age of grace. This is all light, 2,000 years. Let me tell you the character of God. How many know the character of God? Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of grace. Seven years of judgment. That's pretty good, isn't it? When does the, day, when does the darkness start? When the church is raptured out of here and it begins the great tribulation. When does the darkness end? at the second coming of Christ when the millennial kingdom is set up. So I want to be really clear with that. The day of the Lord ends at the second coming of Christ. Second question. What happens, pastor, during the tribulation? This is not something that I made up. We're going to read it right here. Again, I taught through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation the book of Revelation, I taught a lot about the tribulation. It's in there. It's called the, by the way, let me help everybody. All of us experience tribulation. There's a difference between tribulation, obstacles, things, versus the great tribulation. The great tribulation is what John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls a period of time, all right, that I believe it's seven years. All right, so let's read. Second, I'm just going verse by verse. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 6. So, so remember the question. Remember the concern. Paul, we missed it. Jesus came back and we missed it. And he says, time out. You didn't miss it because there are, a couple, there are some things that have to happen prior. Prior to the rapture, prior to the tribulation, and prior to the return of Christ. When he comes all the way to the earth. There's, there's some things. You didn't miss it. Well, what are those things? He says it right here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day. What day? The day of the Lord where it turns to night. When does that happen? At the rapture. How long does that happen? Seven years. When does that culminate? At the return of Christ. 
For that day will not come unless the fall. So number one, unless the falling away comes first. Number two, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits, number three, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining. So something is restraining. There's something that's restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. I'm going to talk about what I believe is restraining absolute cultural wickedness. Just, just, a, just a wholesale do whatever you want to do. So let's talk about those three things. Everybody say falling away. Say the antichrist. Now this is a big term. I'm going to give it to you. It's called the abomination of desolation. I don't have to say it. I'm going to tell you what. That's the third thing. When the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God. Okay. Let's talk about these three things. Remember what Paul's doing. He's writing a letter to Christians in Thessalonica. They're freaked out going, Paul, we missed it. Paul says, you didn't miss it. These three things have to happen first. Number one, falling away. The Greek word for falling away is apostasia. Does that sound familiar? That's the word apostasy. Well, what does apostasy mean? Here's what it means. Defection, not deflection, defection from the truth. Do you know in the military, when you have somebody, a defector, they leave? A defection is when you depart from the truth. So Paul says prior to the return of Christ, prior to this, the, the day of the Lord where it turns, there's something that happens. It starts happening right here, but then it goes full-blown right here. And I'm going to explain why in just a second. So there's a falling away of truth. In other words, where people no longer embrace, listen to me closely, truth as an objective reality. I'm going to make a couple comments some cursory comments for you to think about, ponder. I think it's interesting because I don't know exactly where we are on this. I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't know if we're this close. I don't know if we're this close. I don't know if we're this close. I, I don't know. But I do think it's interesting that I remember, I'm 48 years old. I remember that I remember a time in our culture when we actually believed in absolute truth. There was a time when you actually, there was a right, there was a wrong. It's like, this is right. That's right. There's truth. I will say, I think it's interesting and sad that where our culture, the current trajectory of where our culture is, is that the things that used to be wrong are now called right. And the things that used to be right are now called wrong. So if you call something wrong today that everybody says is right, you're wrong. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Because there is no truth in our culture. What, what defines truth today? There's no such thing. What defines what's real to people is what they feel. Not what's true, it's what you feel. So whatever you feel, it's like, it's true to me. Whatever's true to me is true to me. Whatever's true to you. you so everybody has their own little personal truth. They, they, it's, tr it's situation. Everything's true. So, so there's no objective truth. There's no universal truths in our culture today. It's whatever you think is true. It's whatever you feel. So feelings have now been elevated to the apex to define reality of that's the only thing. It's true to you. And if you tell somebody that that's not true, you're, you're judging me. Really? I'm not sure if that's talking about this, but I tell you one thing. Paul says before the return of Christ, there's a defection, of, there's an apostasy. Everybody say apostasy. In Western culture today, you show me where truth is. 
Number two, the second thing that reveals, that's revealed, is the Antichrist. Okay, the Antichrist. Question, Pastor Steve, is the Antichrist a person or is it a spirit influencing a system? The answer is both. The Antichrist is an actual person that will be, I don't know if he's born today, I don't know that. But it's an actual person, I'm going to show you in a second, but it's also a spirit that influences culture. It influences every part of culture. And the anti, listen to this, anti, everybody say anti. Say Christ. Anti means against. It's, ant, it's against and opposite of Christ. What is Christ like? Humble. What is the Antichrist? Proud and arrogant. What is Christ like? Servant. What is the Antichrist like? Self-serving. It's, it's totally diametrically opposed. So the spirit of the Antichrist is about self. The spirit of the Antichrist is about pride. It's about arrogance. It's not about humility. It's not about, it's, it's, it's the total opposite of the spirit of Jesus. It's anti-Christ. So it's a person, but it's also a, it's a, it's a spirit. So, so, so number one, there's a falling away from truth. There's a defection from truth. There's a deifying of emotion where truth is now whatever you feel. So that has to happen. Second of all is there comes a moment where this person is revealed, but there's also an act. What is the act? Verse 4. The Antichrist sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So there's a moment, there's an action that takes place where he sits as God. He's not God, but he sits, where does he sit? In the what? The temple of God. Go back to the chart. If you can, you can show my chart. I feel like a TV preacher if I had a pointer. I'm not old enough to have a pointer. But anyway, so here we go. When does he do this? According to how I see scripture and a lot of people, all right, this is called right here, and it's called the abomination of desolation. Ab to abominate, a verb. To abominate means he desecrates the temple. A real human being, the Antichrist, walks into the third temple in Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies, and sits down on the mercy seat and declares himself to be God. Okay, stay with me, please. i got about 12 minutes left. Please stay with me. This is very important. He sits down in the temple of God. The scripture talks about in, in, uh, in Daniel, here, in Revelation, the temple of God. All right, let's talk about the temple of God. Because last week I had some questions. Why do you really believe that Israel has to be restored as a nation prior to this? Why do you believe that, Pastor? Because they have to have a third temple built that the Antichrist sits down in. Well, how do you know that? All right, stay with me. This is, is going to be simple, all right? The first temple ever built in Jerusalem... I'm giving you some rough figures, all right? So for all the theologians, if I'm, I'm just giving some thousand years before Christ. Who built the first temple? Solomon, all right? Downtown Jerusalem, all right? Thousand years. Jews worshiped at that temple where God's presence was, watch this, for roughly 450 years. 586, so the first temple right here. All right, first temple is for about four or five hundred years. 586, the Babylons come in. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the lion's den, that whole thing? That's the Babylons come in, and what they do is they destroy the first temple. All right, it's gone. Boom, it's in rubble. Seventy years later, after this, that was 586, 
In 530, the Persian king releases Zerubbabel and the first group of Jews go back to Jerusalem. Watch this. And they start rebuilding the second temple. Do you see it? This temple's built over 500 years. Nehemiah comes and does the walls, Ezra and all this stuff. They're, 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 so, matter of fact, the time of Christ, Jesus drove out money changers from the second temple, big temple. All right? 70 AD, the Romans come in and destroy the second temple. Destroyed it. Today, even as we speak, there is no Jewish temple. There's walls there. There's a, Jew, there's a mosque on the, 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 the Dome of the Rock. There's a mosque. There's no Jewish temple there that's rebuilt. There's fragments of it. Well, where is the Antichrist going to go? <laughs> He's got to go into the temple of God. Well, when is this going to happen? First, Israel has to be reformed as a nation. Second, there needs to be a third temple rebuilt. Does this make sense, sequencing? So, so how is that going to happen? Go back to my scripture. This is going to happen right here. So right now, that's why we're somewhere in this rapture, boom. By the way, the Antichrist, when the rapture happens, you take all true believers out of the world. How many of you know you need somebody that has some answers to figure out how to bring peace? The Antichrist is a political leader. That's who he is on the front end. And he doesn't reveal himself in a deceptive way. He deceives the world, cuts a peace deal with Israel and the nations of the world, and he reveals himself right here when he declares himself, and he abominates the temple. That's what he does. He, de he desecrates the temple. Too much? What if you said, yes, you think I'm going to quit? I'm going to go ahead anyway. <laughs> all that is is just a communication strategy to keep you on page. That's all it is. All right? I got 12 minutes, and if you leave early, you... Mr. Rapture. Here we go. I'm joking. All right. I want to go back just for a second. Is the Antichrist a person or a world, or is it a spirit? It's, it is a, it's both. And by the way, it's affecting every part of our culture today. Every part. Look at verse 6. You know what is restraining. There is a restraint. What is restraining the Antichrist? What is preempting culture's ultimate shift to just, I'll tell you what it is. It's the church. Go back to the chart. It's the church filled with the Spirit. What's right here? It's the church age. Now, listen to me closely. This is important. It's the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What happens at the rapture? We're taken out. Take all the Christians out of the world. Take the Holy Spirit and all objective truth out of the world. How I many you know you don't have much left? By the way, that Christmas party when your family members make fun of you because they think that you're one of those born-again Christians, and, eh, you know, you really believe that? Oh, my gosh. You know, you ought to say gracefully, if it wouldn't for me, this whole place would be destroyed. I'm serious. The only thing that is restrained, I have a brother, older brother, and I'd run into my room as a kid. I'd lock the door, and that was the only thing that restrained him. Again, that was a deceiving spirit because I really could have beat him up. But I, 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 I saw, so everybody say restraint. The only thing that's restraining culture from just going, doing whatever they think is Christians. It says Christians. Really? We're the only thing. See, that's why. So the Antichrist spirit doesn't like Christians. Why? Because it wants to do whatever it wants to do. So it's, it's the sexual ethic of the kingdom of God. It's, it's how we treat people. It's all of those different things. It's, it's Paul says it's restraining what? It's restraining that spirit of lawlessness. Whew. So. 
what do we know? Last thing, what do we know about the Antichrist? I'm almost finished. Stay with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 12. For the mystery of lawlessness. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It does whatever he wants to do. It's already at work. It was worked 2,000 years ago. Sure, it worked today. Only he who now restrains it. That's us. It's you as the church. The Bible says you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It penetrates and preserves. The church of Jesus Christ is preserving culture. But when we're out of here, not good things happen. It's called the Great Tribulation. So you understand your role. For the lawlessness, so, so he who restrains will be do, do so until it's taken out of the way. And then the lawless, non, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. The coming, watch this, uh, let me go, consume the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. By the way, the Antichrist will be destroyed and will spend eternity in a not good place. We believe the Bible talks about a literal hell. So he doesn't win. I want everybody to understand that. Next verse, verse 9. Let's roll. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception, he deceives among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's where we live right here. You can get saved. You can give your heart to Christ. You can be healed. You can be set free. That's what we do freedom groups around here. People are set free by hundreds and hundreds. It's powerful. For this reason, God will send a, a strong delusion. People believe a lie. You know what God does? He allows them. Okay, you can, he, just, he allows them just to up under themselves. Just, they just, just, okay, you just do what you want to do. It's not good that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, the mystery of lawlessness, known as the spirit of the Antichrist, it's at work. And I'm going to say this respectfully, it, it is all over culture. Pastor, what is your perspective as the pastor of the Church of the King? I believe we preach Christ. I believe we are to influence culture. I believe we influence the business world, the media. I believe the sports world, the political world. I believe that we are called to influence and impact. We don't take it over. We influence it with salt and light. We see as many people as we can come to the kingdom of God. We see them saved and set free from sin. But we are called to influence. But there is an opposing force that is fighting against all that is good, all that is right, all that is righteous, all that is holy, all that is anti-Christ is against Christ. And you see it, the deification of man. You see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, which is deified, which is typified by the exaltation of man, the pleasure of man. So it's the pleasure of God, God is in charge, versus the pleasure of man, my feelings and what I want, my lust, my pride, my grief. That's, ah, that's it. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. You know there's a, a festival, and I, I don't care if I say it, the Burning Man Festival in Nevada. I, I was looking at it one day, I thought, this is the ultimate spirit of the Antichrist. Where man discovers in true expression. No, it's, it's the creation worshiping the creation. Are you with me? I mean, you know, our eyes always need to be up towards God. He is the creator. We are the creation. He knows how the world ticks. He knows how we tick. He loves us. He cares about us. And anytime man, anytime we disinvite God into an area of our lives, how I many you know, not good things happen. Not good things. So what do we do, Pastor? And I'm, I'm going to say this. I know this is a non-typical message, and it's, it's, it's a pretty intense. And next week I'll tell everybody, y'all are amazing people. But this is this, and you are, as Christians, you have an assignment from God. We have an assignment from God. 
We're not freaked out, scared. We are filled with faith. We're filled with the power. And we have an assignment because those doors are closing, by the way, at some point in time. Will they close in your generation? I don't know. But I want to make sure when I get to heaven, God says, you did everything you were called to do. I don't know when all this is going to happen, but I know one thing. I know that I've only got one life to live, and so do you. Let me give this as I close. What do we do? Paul says this. Be encouraged, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth to which you were called by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there, I, I was in Haiti in 2010 after the earthquake, and I remember in my hotel room, I had to hold, hold the wall, literally, because it was an aftershock. Anybody ever experienced an aftershock? It is a real deal. I went, oh my gosh. It was like a real deal. And I, I literally, I was like, whoa. It was an aftershock. If you've ever been around an earthquake, there's a pre-tremor. There's tremors on the front end, and there's tremors on the back end. I believe that we are experiencing tremors. The Bible talks about Romans 8, creation's groaning, things are happening in our culture. So what do we do? Three things. Number one, live in truth. Live in truth. Get filled with truth. The average American has 7.3 Bibles in their home. It's not how many Bibles in your home, it's how much Bibles in your heart. Are you with me? If the culture is defecting from truth, we need to press into it. <laughs> We need to press into truth. We need to press into the scriptures. Memorize scripture. Have it in your car. Have it on your phones. and Have it in your heart. Get filled with the word. Speak the word. Memorize the word. Number two, it's not, we need to live in the spirit. We need to be filled with the spirit. Baptize, immerse in the Holy Spirit. Words of wisdom. Words of knowledge. Walk in the power of God. Why? Because, because culture's moving this way. We're the only thing. Listen to me closely. You as a believer are the only thing that can help culture. That can help people. The only thing. The only thing. As you're, but you can't help. You can't help somebody that's drowning if you're drowning yourself. That's so why you need to be filled with truth, filled with the Spirit. What's the last one? You need to live in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to live in, in relationship. That's why small groups are so important. Pastor, this is very heavy. It's a lot of information. I know it is. But I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because I know what's going to happen. At some point in time, Christ is coming back. Is it going to happen in my generation? I don't know, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready if he comes today. I'm ready if he comes tomorrow. I want to live in the truth. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. I want to live filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of God. And I want to live in a relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen to me closely. And we have an assignment from God to be able to see as many people saved, as many people delivered. Why? Because we live in the light, the daytime. A night's coming, but we live in the light. Let's, listen, let's, move in the light and see as many people set free as we can. Come on, how many of y'all believe that? Y'all receive that? Why don't you stand?